0: Good morning. Good morning again. Welcome again. As Pastor Chip said, my name is Scott Blevins. I'm the South Euclid Campus Pastor of Garfield Memorial Church. So good to be with you this morning, wherever you are today. I'm so glad to be with you, and uh, I, I hope that in this time together, that that we can feel that connection that we call the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know, our situation isn't a whole lot different in some respects than the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus. They didn't have big buildings to gather in. They often worshiped and gathered in homes. And, and, and Paul, who was known as the greatest of evangelists and was, who started so many different churches, was not there physically present with most of them, well with none of them was he present all the time, but he would write these letters and then people would take the letters from house to house to house, from church gathering to church gathering to church gathering and read them and And they got the word that way. So it's, it's a lot like that except rather than, you know, you getting the word today through a piece of parchment that someone carries to your house, uh, you're getting it through the interwebs and the internet and and all of these different kind of amazing electronic and digital age stuff that we have today. So So God bless you. Today, as also as Pastor Chip said, we are continuing in the series between two gardens, and today we're talking about. We want to explore this question: Where is the hope? Is there hope for people like me, maybe like you as well, when we find ourselves outside the garden? Uh, The truth is, is Jesus was outside the garden at one point, and 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 some amazing things happened in the garden, but some amazing things also happened. Right outside the garden. We're going to jump right into it today. I want to look at the chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. John 19 verses 41 to 42. And, and it's, it's John says, now there was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified. And in the garden there was a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What I want to highlight right now is that there was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified. The phrasing here, I think, is important. It's not saying, John isn't saying that Jesus was crucified in a garden, but that word place means just what it means today, a defined region, a defined space. And, and in that place where the crucifixion happened, there was also a garden. The, the implication is Jesus was outside of the garden, and that's important. We're going to come back to that because as beautiful as the Garden of Eden was, we're not living in the Garden of Eden anymore. And as beautiful as that heavenly city is going to be with that green space and that garden in it, we're not there yet. So where's the hope for those of us when we're outside the garden? Part of that hope, a big part of that hope, has to do with what happened to Jesus just outside the garden, which he was crucified. That's a big thing. We talk about that a lot. Um, The crucifixion account, the crucifixion event is central to our faith. Um, I heard one pastor recently describe the crucifixion as the climax of the Gospels. That's wrong. I just got to say, that's wrong. It can't be the climax, because if the crucifixion is the climax, that means the resurrection, by definition, is anticlimactic. The resurrection is the climax. The crucifixion is crucial. But a lot of folks who have grown up in the church, and even more folks who are new to the church or exploring or just hearing about the faith, wonder, what's the deal with the crucifixion? Why was Jesus crucified? What does the crucifixion mean? And if you ask that question to English-speaking Christians, you're going to get an answer that often includes one of those big $50 church words, and the word is atonement. And that sounds like a really big word, and in fact, it is kind of a big word. And it's not a word that we use a lot anymore, but I love the history of this word. John Wycliffe was one of the first people to translate the Bible from the Hebrew and and Greek original texts into English. And he was looking for an English word that would capture the notion that through the crucifixion, uh, human beings were reconciled with, made one with God. He couldn't find a good English word, so he did what any good writer would do. He made one up. And the word he made up is a mashup of at one meant. At one meant atonement. That, that by the crucifixion, we are made at one with each other and with God. And that's why the crucifixion. Now, how that happens, the mechanism by that happens, there is no solid, clear, definitive, one and only answer in the Scripture. Now, a lot of you right now are listeners saying, Pastor Scott, you got that wrong. You're speaking heresy. If you got any concerns about what I'm saying, you know, hit up Pastor Kurt. He's online with you right now. Tell him you think I'm crazy. He might agree with you and think I'm crazy as well. Um, and uh, maybe I can get on and respond to some things a little bit later too. But the reality is, the New Testament, including the Gospel themselves offer us a lot of different word pictures, a lot of different metaphors, a lot of different images for how atonement through the crucifixion happened, and how it works. One of those that, again, if you're in an English-speaking Western church, one of the ones you're going to hear, you won't hear this phrase a lot, but you'll hear you'll hear people say, well, that Jesus died on the cross, we're made at one with God, because we sinned uh, collectively as humanity and as individuals, we've sinned, we've broken the law of God, because God is a just God, our sin needed to be punished, but we couldn't handle the punishment, so Jesus took our punishment himself upon himself. Our punishment upon himself when he was crucified, and that is how we are made at one with God because Jesus took our punishment upon himself. There's a fancy phrase for this. I'm going to share the phrase so you can impress your friends at the club and at the bar. The the phrase is penal substitutionary atonement. Pull that out the next time you're sitting down at the bar having a bud, and, and no one will be impressed. But you can still say it penal substitutionary atonement. That's one of the ways that scripture describes how. Jesus' crucifixion made us one with God. The truth is, though, there are a lot of different ways that the Scripture describes it as well. And a lot of folks that are new to the faith and a lot of folks that have grown up in the faith really struggle with this penal substitutionary atonement. It's not uncommon to hear someone ask, So you're telling me that a loving God who commands us to forgive freely couldn't forgive us until he tortured his son to death? That's a legitimate question. That's a legitimate question, but don't let that question keep you from experiencing the power of the crucifixion. Because the scripture itself, the scripture itself offers us a lot of different images, including economic images, describing our, our situation in relation to God is that we have a vast debt that we can never repay. And so through the crucifixion, somehow Jesus repaid that debt. There's military descriptions that, that Jesus is, it was, was leading the charge in the final battle against Satan and the forces of evil, including death. And by his death and resurrection, he conquered Satan. He conquered the forces of evil, including conquering death. There are biological descriptions of what happened that through Jesus' death and, and, and new life, we can be die to ourselves and be born again, born anew into new life. That's a biological description of what was happening. There are there are familial descriptions that through the resurrection, or through the crucifixion and the resurrection, we can now somehow be adopted as God's children, made part of God's family. All of these different word images, all of these different metaphors exist in the scripture to help us get a sense of what was happening when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead came back to life. Garfield Memorial Church, you know, if you've been part of Garfield Church before, you know that diversity is, is a core part of who we are. Diversity is one of our core values. Um, We don't believe diversity is a good idea. We don't think it's a nice program and plan. We believe it's inherent to the gospel. It's God's plan. It's God's idea. The kingdom of heaven isn't going to be segregated, so the church on earth shouldn't be segregated either. Diversity is core to that. What we don't often say here is the reality that diversity itself is embedded in the New Testament, the way it's written and the way it's structured. We have four different Gospels, four different accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and each one of them is a little bit different. None, one of, none of them are exactly the same. And, and there were movements early in the church to say, you know, this is kind of embarrassing. We've got four different stories. They don't always line up. Let's just make one story where everything lines up and there's no contradiction, there's no confusion. And, and they call that harmonizing the Gospels. And the church rejected that notion. The church said, no, we've got these four streams of faith, these four communities of people that are all followers of Jesus and just see it a little bit differently. And the church said, that's good. We want that. We don't want a melting pot in the church where everyone is blended in to some sort of generic version of each other. We want the diversity. And part of that diversity is diversity in understanding the meaning and the power and the operation of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, for some of you, you're thinking, Oh, plevins, you're way out of line here. This is crazy. There's just one right answer. Hit Pastor Kurt up. He can talk about it with you. He'll probably agree with you that I'm crazy. But it's the Bible. It's the Bible. I think one of the things we have to deal with is that this question of what does the crucifixion mean and how does it work is, is the wrong question to be asking or at least not the best question to be asking. The reality is that the crucifixion is presented to us in the context of a story. God speaks to us through stories. Scripture is a story. In fact, it's a collection of lots of smaller stories. The word Bible doesn't mean book, and it doesn't mean story. It means library. The Bible is a collection of stories. And, and that, that, that strung together and, and in this beautiful mosaic create a great and amazing and awesome story. And the crucifixion and resurrection are central parts of that story. And when we see something in a story, we don't say, what does it mean and how does it work? Unless we're really disengaged from the story. When we see something in a story, we simply experience what the story reveals to us. So let's put the crucifixion and the resurrection in the context of this great story. We can't do the whole thing. We don't have enough time to do the whole thing. But I want to jump back to Genesis, back to the Garden of Eden, and I want to read some verses from Genesis chapter 3. Okay? Genesis chapter 3, we'll start right here. To the woman he, that is God, this is after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit God said, don't eat it, it's toxic to you, if you eat it you're going to die. They ate it and lo and behold bad things happened and we'll see they did die, they did die. To the woman he said after this, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This, by the way, is not God endorsing patriarchal society in which men oppress women. This is God saying one of the consequences of you living life on your own terms is you're going to suffer and there's going to be oppression and different groups of people are going to dominate other groups of people. It's not God's design. It's what we get from living from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the man... To the man, he said, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Again, this is not God blaming Eve. If you remember, Adam blamed Eve. He tried to scapegoat Eve and say, well, you know, this woman you gave me, God, she's the one that told me to do this. And God said, look, this was your decision as much as hers, okay? You decided to do this. And to the man, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever." Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way back to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve, who were born in the garden, who lived in the garden, who walked and talked with God in the garden, who disregarded God's commands and ate the tree, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, have now found themselves outside the garden and cut off from the tree of life. You see, they did die. They just became the walking dead. I preached that a couple weeks ago. You can find it online if you want to. I'm not going to re-preach all of that today. But but they became the walking dead and passed that death onto all of us. And God said, what we don't want is them to carry their living death on forever so we can't let them get to the tree of life. And he cut them off from the tree of life and cut us off from the tree of life. It was still in the garden. We were outside the garden. Now, what does this mean? That's that's the question again. What does it mean? Why is this here? What do we see? And again, in a story, in a story... The storyteller presents certain facts not just because they happen, but because the storyteller wants us wants to show things to us, wants to reveal things to us. You can watch any movie. For some reason, the movie The Joker keeps coming to mind. Don't let your kids watch The Joker. But Arthur Fleck, in that we keep seeing him over and over again, checking his mail and there's nothing in his mailbox, over and over and over again. Who doesn't get any mail at all? Everyone gets junk mail, if nothing else. Arthur Fleck got nothing. Why does the author, or why did the director and the storyteller have us see that They were revealing to us that for Arthur, he wasn't even sure he existed. No one outside of him acknowledged his existence. Elements of the story reveal things to us. How about this garden story? What does it reveal? One of the things it reveals is that our actions have consequences. Adam and Eve made a decision, and that decision had consequences. They took an action, and that action had consequences. And the consequences weren't just for them. They were for everybody else who followed them. Their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, their actions affected everyone. Our actions have consequences. That's good news, because that means they matter. And the fact that your actions have consequences and my actions have consequences mean that we matter. If we could do things and it didn't have any impact on anyone else anywhere, even on ourselves, then we wouldn't need to be here. Our existence would be entirely irrelevant. Our actions have consequences and that means that we matter. Another thing that's revealed in this story is God's response. God could have done a lot of things. God could have struck them physically dead on the spot, wiped them out, and started over. God could have punished them them severely. God could have spent endless ages lecturing them. That was the worst part for me. I could take the punishments growing up. I was okay with that. Just don't lecture me. I know it was wrong. Give me the spanking. Put me in time out. Take away my recess. Just stop talking to me. That was just me. All right? All right? But God's response wasn't any of those things. God's response is seeking an intimate, honorable, loving relationship. God's response was, I can work with that. I created you to be in relationship with you. I created you to be in relationship with each other and with me so that none of us would be alone. I created this. I created you. And just because you messed up, just because you departed from my plan, doesn't mean I'm departing from my plan. I'm going to find a way for us to be reconciled. So God killed some animals. He clothed them to protect them. And he didn't cut them off from food. But it, it just now it's going to be harder. They're not living in the garden anymore. But God's response was to seek reconciliation, to seek reconciliation. So in the context of this story, what does the crucifixion reveal? Think about that for a second. Don't try to explain it. Don't try to analyze it. Just think about this crucifixion. What, what does it show me about me? What does it show us about us what does it show us about God? When we ask that question, we get some interesting responses. One of the things that the crucifixion reveals is the depth of our problem. If it took that, if it took Jesus, the, you know, I'm going I'm to join John Wycliffe this morning and invent a word. My English teacher, God rest his soul, will be spinning in his grave. Jesus was the goodest person that ever lived the most alive person, the alivest person that ever lived. And what we did to him, we, we tortured him, we rejected him, we despised him, we humiliated him, and we killed him publicly in the most shameful way possible. This reveals the depth of our problem. Our guilt, if it's a legal problem, our guilt is complete And absolute. We took the only good person who ever lived and punished him as the worst sort of criminal. Our guilt, if we're hope, if we're in debt, the crucifixion reveals that we are hopelessly in debt to God. If we are sick in our spirits, souls, and bodies, and we know that we're sick. My goodness, you're sitting at home right now because of sickness. We're sick in our spirits, souls, and bodies. This is how sick we are. That this good and wonderful person who brought life, raising people from the dead, healing physical illnesses, casting out demons, healing spiritual diseases, restoring and healing relationships, we took that guy and killed him. How sick are we if we would do that? Alienated? Cut off? Are we so separated from God? We are so separated from God that when God moved into the neighborhood and lived among us as one of us, not only didn't we recognize him, but we rejected him and killed him because he was so disconcerting to our way of life and our way of living. That's how lost we are. If we're lost, we're so lost that when the person that came to find us and bring us back home finds us and says, follow me, I'm the way back home, we kill him. That's how lost we are. Enslaved. Enslaved. Why would we have done those things? Why would we kill the goodest person, the most alive person that ever lived? Why would we kill the one who came to find us to bring us back home if our minds were not trapped and enslaved by ways of thinking, systems of understanding, economic and political structures that say we cannot tolerate this person, Jesus. He is not acceptable. He is a threat to our civilization. We have to kill him. That's how enslaved we are. And we're shamed. We're shamed by all of this because God came to us face to face and we rejected Him. We stripped Him naked and hung Him on the cross on the side of the road so people walking by could mock Him and ridicule Him and laugh at Him and despise Him. That's how shameful we have become. And if you you say, I didn't do any of that, Pastor. I'm more like Mary. She was there. She followed Jesus all the way. She loved Him. She didn't abandon Him. She didn't reject Him. She didn't betray Him. She was right there. Yes, she was right there. And she was absolutely powerless to do anything about it. So even if you can say none of those other things fit me, you're just as powerless as the rest of us to stop this kind of evil from happening. Why? Because you are and me and all of us are the walking dead. We are like those Pharisees, our bodies, our, our, our tombs hiding dead people's bones. And we carry our death with us wherever we go. The crucifixion reveals the depth of our problem. The crucifixion reveals something else too. It reveals the breadth of God's solution. Because in the crucifixion and the resurrection and those two things, the crucifixion and resurrection, they're two sides of the same coin. One has no power and no meaning without the other. You can't have a resurrection without a crucifixion because if Jesus weren't dead, he can't come back to life, right? And if Jesus just died and didn't come back to life, then he's just another victim of the, of the brokenness and horror and the sickness of this world. The two things go together. And the breadth of God's solution says that in the crucifixion and resurrection, all of those things we just mentioned, all of those things are dealt with. We're forgiven. That great debt, Jesus took all of that on Himself and hanging on the cross, He looked at the people crucifying Him and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Our debt is canceled. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. He hung on the cross and He paid our debt. He healed Everything on the cross. Jesus took every form of brutal physical punishment imaginable and he died and he came back to life completely restored and he offers us that life and that healing. Jesus redeemed us, set us free. He bought us out of slavery with his own life. He found us on the cross. He he said, if you lift me up, I'll draw all people to me. He found us on the cross and he reconciled us to God on the cross. And Jesus, when he defeated Satan, when he conquered the forces of evil, when he conquered death, he made us something better. We're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We've been adopted into the family of God. We're inheritors of the kingdom of God. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can die to self and be born again Into a new life. The breadth of God's solution is revealed to us by the cross. (coughs) Excuse me. Third thing the cross reveals to us is the cost of grace. The cost of grace. Grace is free. Other folks have said this, not me. I didn't invent this. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. The gift of freedom, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of canceled debt, the gift of healing, the gift of new life. All of this came to us freely, but at a great price. And that price was Jesus. Uh, Pastor Chip showed you his cross. I'm going to show you mine. I wear a cross. It's a little different. I borrowed this idea, learned it from our Catholic brothers and sisters. I'm holding it up. I know you can't see it. but This is a crucifix. It actually still has an an image of Jesus on the cross. And some some folks say, well, you know, Jesus, you can't keep him on the cross. Jesus is not on the cross. I understand that. But I wear this inside my shirt against my skin to remind me of the price that was paid for my freedom and for my new life. There's a cost to grace. Another thing that's revealed in the crucifixion is the triumph of God's life, the triumph of God's life, remember what God said if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die and we surely have become the living dead, just look at the world around us today to see how we carry our death with us, everywhere we go we killed the son of God and he came back to life and he offers that life to us life wins, not death God's life triumphs over the death that we brought into of the world. And it reveals, the cross reveals and the crucifixion reveals the depths of God's love for us. You know, you know, I believe Jesus was going to come to earth whether Adam and Eve had ever sinned or not. Jesus did not come in order to die on the cross. Jesus came to woo us back to him and to his father. He is our husband waiting for us. We are wandering in the wilderness seeking other ways to find satisfaction and pleasure and hope. And Jesus came. He came. He was going to come anyway. He was going to come anyway. And we rejected Him. We turned away. And Jesus came anyway. Knowing what we had become. Knowing how lost and broken and sick we were. Jesus came anyway. Knowing we would kill Him. And He came willing To forgive, willing not to punish, but to die, even to die to draw us back to Him and to our Father, to show us and be the way back home. The cross reveals the depths of God's love to us. There's one other thing this morning that I want to highlight that the cross reveals, there are other things. Read through the New Testament. You can find it in the Bible. It's the second, you know, it's the last third of the book. You can find it online. You can find hard copies. It's a great book. Read it. Start with the Gospel of Matthew. It's a great place to start. One of the things that the crucifixion reveals to us is that the story is open-ended. That how we respond is how the story ends for us. Remember, our actions have consequences. We matter. You matter. The Gospel of Mark is an extraordinary little book. The orig- in, the, in your Bible, if you've got an English Bible right now, you probably have one that has three different endings to the Gospel of Mark. The original ending is that the women who came to find Jesus found the tomb empty and ran away scared. And that's the end. That's the end of the Gospel of Mark. One of the things Mark is telling us is that our response is the real end of the gospel. How we respond matters. Beethoven. This is one of those stories. I don't know if it's a story story or a historical truth or or just a really cool story. I, I do know it's a truth story. There, whether it's historical or not, there's truth in it. The story is this that, that Beethoven sat down to give a uh, a recital to a group of people and he played one of his amazing piano orchestrations. I'm not a music guy, I'm using all the wrong terminology. Craig McGuire, please forgive me, played this great piano piece. And at the end, he stood up, and he bowed, and everyone clapped and responded favorably. And then someone raised a hand and asked, Herr Beethoven, what does that song mean? And in response, Beethoven sat down, and he played the song again. See, it's not the right question to ask. It's not the best question to ask, at least the best thing we can ask about the story of the crucifixion is will I receive it? And then how will I respond to it? You know what I'm talking about, even if you don't know what I'm talking about. Because you know the last time you went to a movie and you didn't receive the movie, you know what happened. You lean back. You've probably watched one on Netflix or Prime or whatever, you know, since this whole corona thing started. And you lean back and go, this is just dumb. No one would ever do that. That kind of situation is preposterous. This is ridiculous. No one talks that way. This, And you start nitpicking at little things like, you know, they got the wrong kind of tires on the car. That's for a friend of mine out there who told me that about a movie he watched recently. That the tires didn't match the year in which the movie was set. Good for you. You're not receiving the movie. You're analyzing it. You're picking at it. But when you're on the edge of your seat and you jump at the right time and you gasp at the right time and you cry at the right time and you laugh at the right time and you cheer at the right time, you're receiving that movie. That story is penetrating you and it's doing something in you and it's leading you to respond to what you're seeing in front of you. That's the question of the gospel. That's the issue of the crucifixion. Not can we analyze it properly and write a paper about it that can pass a class or impress our friends as bloggers. The question is, are we receiving the story? Is it having an impact on us? Receive it. Receive the story. Here's the thing. The story is not an isolated thing. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And they were separated from the tree of life. And there was Jesus. There was Jesus. Life hanging on a tree outside the garden. And he died. And then his body was placed into the garden tomb. And he rose again. And Pastor Chip's going to preach about that. But hear this, folks. Hear this. Hear this story. God moved the tree. God moved the tree of life. Did you catch that? The tree of life was in the garden, and God said, We can't let them get it. They'll take their death with them into eternity. But then Jesus died and rose again from the dead, and God moved the tree of life. He moved it outside the garden, and He hid it. He disguised it. It looks like a cross. It looks like the cross. And you know, when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they said, the Bible says they looked at it and they saw that it was good to look at and it was pleasing to taste. But the fruit of life hanging from the tree of life looks like death. If you have time to do anything this week, Take time to read, to hear, to listen to, to receive this story. And let it do in you what the author, God himself, wants to do in you through the story. Let it move you to respond. If you're angry, if you're joyful, if you're jumping up and down in praise, if you're still just confused and wondering, let it penetrate you and respond to it. And when you're able, go to the tree of life, lay down your life, be willing to die to yourself and reach up and touch the fruit of the tree, which is Jesus himself and receive him in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Amen.